If you are awake, you will see people the way God sees people. For the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. You will see people headed towards a real destiny, either in heaven forever and ever or in hell forever and ever. And that will drive the way you live and the things that you will speak about. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working on a study in the book of Jonah, and in this series, Pastor Carl examines both the historicity and the relevance of this great book. Today, we'll be emphasizing how important it is to be spiritually awake and to have a perspective from above. What he needed was perspective, and what we need is perspective concerning the discipline of God. Listen to the next verse that the writer of the Hebrews quotes. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now let me say parenthetically, there are many reasons why people suffer in this world. First of all, Christian and non-Christian alike suffer just because we live in a fallen world. When sin entered into the world, not only did man fall, but creation fell. And so all of creation groans and is in travail looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And so because of this world that we live in, there's common suffering. There's tornadoes. We've seen the tragic tornadoes in this past month. It's history and most people's minds, but it's still going on this morning. We've seen fires destroy entire neighborhoods. We saw our country hit yesterday by a tsunami. We saw a cyclone last week. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen it on and on and on. It just doesn't seem to stop. And that's what we call common suffering. Christians and non-Christians alike, they get cancer. They have heart problems. They can be doing everything right, but they still have those problems. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because God puts man on notice. Had God left us in an idyllic kind of Garden of Eden, we might have concluded everything's just fine, but it's not. And so the thorns and thistles, the aches and pains and everything else, it's an expression of God's grace to get us prepared. But beyond common suffering, there is what we might call Christian suffering. Peter speaks of those who will suffer as a Christian. Jesus spoke of those who suffered for righteousness' sake. In preparing us, he said this in John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Paul will write, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I hope you realize God has only one son without sin, but he has many sons and none of which are without suffering. We will all suffer either common suffering or sometimes Christian suffering. And if you decide to live godly, you might have your head taken off, as some believers did last week. Or in standing with our brothers in Canada today in solidarity, they're preaching in evangelical pulpits across Canada because it is now against the law to preach from a pulpit against transgenderism and homosexuality. And maybe before the end of this day, some of them will be arrested. We don't know. But you will suffer somehow. 
You may, as a college student, feel left out and very lonely. I've had college students come home and say, I feel very lonely. How so? Well, you know, like, nobody wants to be with me because I don't do what they're doing. The 18 to 25 group in America is godless beyond imagination. Yes, you will feel lonely. All who desire to live godly for Christ Jesus are going to be persecuted. But not only is there common suffering and Christian suffering, there's carnal suffering. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews highlights here. Verse 7 of Hebrews 12, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? His premise is is that it's the responsibility of parents to discipline their children. Obviously, he didn't live in the 21st century. In our day, when discipline is administered, typically, it's at one of two ends of the spectrum, either gross abuse or just total permissiveness. Now, I rise up and call my parents blessed because, humanly speaking, many of the assets I have come from their disciplinary process. And I think I can remember just about every spanking they ever gave me, and I can't ever remember saying, Dad and Mom, thank you so much for that fresh expression of your love. (laughs) But then he quickly adds in verse 8, notice, but if you are without discipline, of which all, all true believers, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There are many people today who profess the name of Christ, they dabble in the world, they disobey the Lord, they despise Bible study and prayer. The Lord's day is anything but a priority to them. They seem to be living only for self, and they say, well, God never really disciplines me. Well, that's not something you should brag about, because God says, if you're saved, if you are one of mine, you will meet me in discipline. And discipline in the New Testament, of course, comes in both the positive and negative realms. Sometimes it's a woodshed discipline. Sometimes you're doing everything right, but God wants to take you further. And so he orchestrates the circumstances. But if you can live in sin and God not chastise you, you have a sure sign that you are illegitimate and not a true son. Now, please don't confuse the law of sowing and reaping with divine chastisement. Christian and non-Christian alike can experience the law of sowing and reaping. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. But many times, the poison water we drink are from the wells that we've polluted. The sour fruit we eat are from the seeds that we've sown. And we're just suffering the consequences of decisions that we have made. That's not what the writer of the Hebrews is speaking about, and certainly that's not what we are reading here this morning in the prophet Jonah. Look again at chapter 1 and verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the seas, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Now, this was a great storm. You know, it's one thing to have your boat in the water. It's quite another thing to have the water in your boat. There was a great storm, and the ship began to break up. It's creaking, it's popping. Furthermore, verse 5, we are told, then the sailors became afraid. Every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. 
I mean, there's kind of a spontaneous prayer meeting here. As you know, there's no atheists in a foxhole. In fact, the Hebrew text reads, each and every one of the sailors shouted or cried out to their God in prayer. And of course, if you were a Phoenician sailor, you could have had any one of a multiplicity of gods. And many times they would even carry these idols onto the ship itself. And beyond that, notice, because, you know, everybody crowd to their God. Hopefully we'll hit the right one and he'll stop this thing. Beyond that, very practically, it says they threw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. In other words, they were throwing their prophets overboard. The very means to support their family is going into the drink. To put it another way, when you run from God, you not only hurt yourself, you hurt others. Because the saying is true, no man is an island unto himself. No one sins in isolation. Children are hurt when parents are not walking with God. Wives are hurt when their husbands are not walking with God. Husbands are hurt when their wives are not walking with God. And the church is hurt. When a member is not walking with God, which is why God calls elders in the local assembly to discipline church members. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 tells us that you're to remove such a member. Now, he's not talking about perfection. We all sin in many ways, for we all stumble in many ways. Can you say amen? Oh, that was pretty weak. I hope you're not self-righteous, but listen. He's not talking about perfection, but he's talking about testimony. He's talking about direction. And when a man or woman is walking in the opposite direction away from God, the elders have a responsibility. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and when left unchecked, it becomes like a cancer that metastasizes. Now, sometimes we point our fingers at the unbelieving world, and we say, hey, they're the problem. They may be a problem, but understand the chief function of the church is to be salt and light. And Jesus said in the last of the last days that the church would be lukewarm, that men would lose their saltiness. And that's what's happening in America today. We can blame it on the government. And I'm up for, you know, fighting up in Columbia this session because there's a lot of moral issues that are coming down the pike, and most Christians don't have a clue as to what's happening. Yes, they want to make it against the law, as it is already in 11 states, to counsel people out of transgenderism slash a homosexual relationship. The Dem platform wants to expand it nationally, make it against the law, and the way it's worded in their platform is it would make it against the law for me to tell someone who's homosexual, yes, it's sin, but yes, God can forgive you, and yes, God can deliver you. So look, I'm up for having my voice heard. I don't believe we should grease the skids to bring in the second coming of Christ. But at the same hand, that's not my hope. You give it another 10 years and this 18 to 30 year group is in power. America will not be the same. But you see, we are to be like salt, and the function of salt is not just simply to enhance the flavor of a food, but it's a, primarily in the first century a preservative. And the power to change our country, the power to change our county, the power to change our, our, our city, it's not in the White House, it's in the church houses. The people of God live for God and speak up for what is right. 
And sadly, the reason so many Christians have so little influence is because they're like the world. And we bought into Rick Warren and Bill Hybels' methodology for doing church. Let's make it comfortable for the pagan. Let's dumb down the messages. Let's jettison expository preaching. And we'll fill our auditoriums. And indeed, we did. And look at the disaster that it's brought in the church. Now, when I preached that 30 years ago, and I did, and those of you who've been with me that long know that, I received a lot of criticism, but now we have seen the fruit of it. It didn't take long. So very often we think, well, the problem was with the pagan world. Actually, most of the time, the problem is with us. Look, there'd be no storm if Jonah was in the will of God, but he wasn't. Now, do not miss here in verse 5 where Jonah is in all of this. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. I was reading the Septuagint this week. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's interesting, the word they use for sound asleep is rendered snoring. <laughs> he was snoring, man. He was out of it. He had basically a do not disturb sign on his cabin and across his heart before the living God, he wrote, do not disturb. You say, how is it that he could be sound asleep? I mean, how can you be so out of it when you're out of the will of God very easily? When you're out of God's will, you get depressed, you get despondent. When you're depressed and you're despondent, it brings exhaustion. Yes, you can sleep like a baby. It's like a burn. You become insensitive to pain. So these sailors are dying. They're ready to go under. And Jonah's sound asleep. And I'm afraid that some people today are sound asleep in their carnality. Look at verse 6. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? He's pretty abrupt. He's ticked off. How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Here's an unbeliever telling the Christian, so to speak, the believer to pray. I find it interesting that sometimes it's the unbelieving pagan who will remind us of the standards that are found in God's word that we profess. Get up, call on your God. Ours certainly aren't concerned. Maybe you've got a God that will be concerned. Maybe your God will feel sorry for us. The words had to sting. Had to be like a bag of bricks hitting him in the face. I mean, God had called him to have concern and compassion on lost people. And here are these lost people are telling him he needs to have concern and compassion. Call on your God. He's turned in his prophet's badge, but he's being rebuked by non-unbelieving men. So he's in the middle of this storm. The sea is raging. He should have been in Nineveh by now, but he's not. He is sound asleep in his sin. These guys are, are praying fervently as best they know how to pray as pagans. By the way, it's interesting because the word here for sailor um, is used in other places in the Old Testament as a play on words. The word for sailor is a play on word for the word salt. And so to this day, we speak of some seasoned men as an old salt. 
We've had a few men over the years who have worked on the ocean, and they've told me, I've asked them, what's it like? You ever been caught in a bad storm? Oh, yeah, let me tell you what it's like. It can happen. And so, look, they want every God covered, no God left behind. Call on your God! But can he? No, not really. Not with any effectiveness. Why? Because his heart's out of fellowship. Remember what the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard iniquity, not if I sin, but if I cling to sin, if I regard sin, if I hold on to sin. We dump verses like this in Isaiah 66 where God doesn't hear on the pagan, has nothing to do with the pagan, has everything to do with the believer. When we hold on to sin, we say, well, God always answers prayer. He says, yes, no, or maybe no, that's not true. Sometimes he doesn't even listen. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. He has erected this barrier between himself and God, but now he's awake. For the first time, he's up on deck. The ship is rocking and reeling. He can feel the wind blowing. He hears it creaking. There's mortal danger here. And in a flash of time, he puts two and two together. And he knows that this is the hand of God himself. And I hope you realize that wherever you go, God goes behind you and in front of you. You can't flee God. And Jonah is the only man who knows the true and living God. But at this moment, again, he's not on speaking terms. He comes up on deck. The sailor is, sailors are pleading with him. Interestingly, the, again, the, the Hebrew word for sailor is an old salt. They, they, they know this is no ordinary storm. This is something that is out of heaven. Something's happened and it's real big and it's like nothing we've seen before. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots. This prayer thing's not working. So let's go to plan B. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So knowing that this prayer strategy is not working, they draw lots. Now remember, this is a Phoenician ship. It's going from Joppa to Tarshish. So based on the historical records we have from a number of ancient Greek historians, it's a ship of at least 25 men. So for the sake of argument, you've got some container. Usually you'd have 25 pebbles in it. One would have a mark on it. And you would see who would get the marked stone. And by a stroke of luck, it falls to Jonah. Well, not really. We don't believe in luck, do we? I hope you don't ever say, I got lucky. Because that's a dishonor to God for you to describe his work in those terms because his providence extends to every detail and he works everything together for good. But again, God worked at this time in human history through lots. Proverbs says the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. One commentator paraphrased this verse, and he said, man throws the dice, but it is God who makes the spots come up. Now, of course, after Pentecost, no one draws lots. Why? Because now we have one, not just the word of God, but we have the spirit of God. But the lot is singled out on Jonah. And so what do they do? They nail him with five questions. Did you notice verse eight? They said to him, tell us now, on whose account? Has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where did you come from? What is your country? From what 
people are you? So just picture this. The wind is whipping. The ship is rolling up and down. The waves and the rain is biting. They draw straws, so to speak. It falls to Jonah. First question, what have you done to bring this? What's your occupation? Where are you from? What's your nationality? And he answers. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Translator, I am a believer in the one true God. It's brilliant what he's doing. He is appealing to general revelation because he knows that this man knows that there's just one God. Every sailor on board knows it. You see, it's a suppression of what you know to be true to go from being monotheist to being polytheistic. Every man by nature is monotheistic, the Bible teaches. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And so we did remove someone from the radio station recently. Why? Because they said a person could be a Hindu or a Buddhist and just not have believed in Jesus, but if they've responded to the light they have, they could still go to heaven. Actually, the Bible teaches just the opposite. You have enough light to condemn you before a holy God. All men know there is a God. I can see him in creation. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through what he has made, and so evolution denies that. We suppress the truth of God. We don't acknowledge him as creator. We don't give him thanks. So God gave us over to sensuality, Romans 1. God then gave us over to homosexuality. Then God gave us over to a depraved, upside-down mind where we call good evil and evil good. And so now the preacher is the center for telling people the truth. That's a suppression of truth. But listen, if you respond to the light you have, God will give you more light, and he will ultimately give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you reject that gospel, listen, God does what he preaches. Sometimes Jesus said you don't cast your pearl before swine. You withhold gospel truth because a man will just stomp over it and make fun of it. And sometimes God doesn't give a person any more light because they won't respond to the light they already have. But listen, there's salvation in no one else. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Someone will never see the inside of heaven, Jesus said, unless you are born again. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the God of heaven and on earth. And listen, if you're running from God, you'll be asleep spiritually as well, just as he was a few short moments earlier physically. You say, Pastor, well, I I think I'm awake. I, I talk about Jesus. I have a walk for Jesus. Look, you can talk in your sleep and you can walk in your sleep. Oh, I'm passionate about Jesus. Sometimes I even cry in church over him. Look, people cry in their sleep. Well, I think a whole lot about Jesus. You can think about Jesus in your sleep. It's called dreaming. You say, well, how can I really know if I'm awake or asleep? It's very simple. If you are awake, you will see people the way God sees people. For the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. You will see people headed towards a real destiny, either in heaven forever and ever or in hell forever and ever. And that will drive the way you live and the things that you will speak about. So here's Jonah. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, but nothing could be further from the truth, at least at this moment. 
Now, he's not trying to discredit God, yet at the same time, he is fleeing from God. He has just affirmed the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's the God I worship. And when he says that, notice, the men became extremely frightened. By the way, we just have a summary here in verse 10 of all that he said, and I'll show you that in a moment. I think most of you picked it up already. These men, literally it says, feared with a great fear. And so they ask, how can you do this? How could you do this, Jonah? You're the preacher. You say you worship God who made the sea that we're in. You worship God who made the land where we wish we were in. And you're bringing this on us. And that's what pagans often do. They have a way of pointing out our faults. You lose your cork at the office and they say, hey, Christian deacon, uh, you're not supposed to act that way, are you? God will sometimes rebuke us, even through lost people. For the man knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told him, told them. That tells us the whole story is in here. He rehearsed with them what he had gone through and what he was doing. Initially, they thought he was in trouble because of something he had done, but he was actually in trouble because of something he was not doing. He should have been going to Nineveh, but he was going in the opposite direction. So, verse 11, they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. God was turning up the heat, and that's what he'll do at the end of time. He'll turn things up in the physical realm, in the natural realm. Things will get more and more progressively worse, and then again the water will break and the birth pangs will come during the great tribulation period. Of course, these statements here in verse 10 that these sailors make tell us again they had missed the motive. They didn't understand that he was in, they were in the mess they were, not because he had done something wrong, but because he wasn't doing something right. He said to them, notice verse 12, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. It reveals his determination not to do the will of God, but to disobey God's will. Throw me into the sea. It's all my fault. He's confessing it. Tell us what to do, Jonah. We'll do anything you want us to do. Throw me in. You know what he could have said? He could have said, look, you guys repent of your false gods. And I'll repent of my disobedience. You turn this ship around, bring me back to Tel Aviv, and everything will be different. But not Jonah. He is stubbornly rebellion. He might have said, he could have bluffed his way out of it, and I appreciate he didn't do that. Give me an order. I don't know why we're in this mess. Let me help you row. But at least he's honest. Jonah was in such a state of rebellion that he was willing to put his life on the line before he would turn back in the direction God had called. Listen tomorrow to hear the concluding part of today's message. And if you'd like to hear it in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org or give us a call at 877-787-7478 
and request program JNH3, available on CD or DVD. And don't forget, you can always use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets. When you call or visit online, perhaps consider giving a donation in support of this ministry. Tomorrow, the conclusion of our third message in the study of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.